Well, last week we caught up with Daniel, our protagonist, after he had been living the retired life in Babylon for about 20 years. He was summoned by King Belshazzar in the middle of a wild party the king was throwing to interpret a message that had been written on the wall of the banquet hall by a levitating, unattached hand, and had supernaturally written the message, etched it into the plaster on the wall. And that message ended up prophesying the doom of the king who would die that very night as the Babylonian Empire came to an end. The city being conquered by the forces of Cyrus the Great, the leader of the Medo-Persian Empire. This week we pick up the story early in the reign of Darius, a king of the city and province of Babylon who served under Cyrus the Great. Darius may have been his name or it may have been his title. Historians are unsure, it doesn't really matter. And today's story is considered by many to be the most famous story in the Bible, actually the one that the most people have heard of. It's Daniel in the lion's den. It's full of political intrigue, entrapment, bold faith, and the seemingly certain destruction of our hero, Daniel. So let's jump in. Daniel chapter 6, verse 1, we read, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom and over these three governors of whom Daniel was one that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Darius would answer to Cyrus the Great for the job that he did running the province of Babylon and Bible scholars tell us that the phrase so that the king would suffer no loss, points to concerns on the part of Darius that the administrators he currently had working for him were doing a bad job, were corrupt, were skimming a little off the top and stealing from government resources. And so Darius doesn't want to answer for that to Cyrus, so he comes up with a new system of management. He's going to appoint 120 satraps or princes And they're basically going to be government administrators. And these 120 satraps are going to be accountable to three governors, three sort of prime ministers. And Darius makes Daniel one of these three governors. Now, we don't know what Daniel has been doing since the night Belshazzar was killed and the Medo-Persians conquered Babylon. But as we talked about last week, all signs point to him being the one who showed Cyrus that 150-year-old prophecy that called him by name, Cyrus, in the book of Isaiah. And that seems to have impressed Cyrus enough that he placed Daniel in some sort of government position where Daniel was able to thrive and impress Darius well enough that when Darius assembled his new administration, Daniel was one of the three top guys that he wanted over the province of Babylon. Verse 3, then this Daniel underlined distinguished himself above the governors and satraps. And then underline this, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought, that means he started thinking about setting him over the whole realm. So I really want you to notice something here. We're we're told that Daniel distinguished himself. That means he stuck out among all the other administrators and governors because of the quality of his character, his work ethic, and his wisdom. Enough that Darius started thinking out loud, I might have to put this guy in charge of the whole province of Babylon. I mean, he's that good. 
And we're told that the reason he was able to stick out like that and exhibit those qualities was because an excellent spirit was in him, and indeed it was. The most excellent spirit was in him, the Holy Spirit. And you and I have that same Holy Spirit within us. It's not that Daniel had a a better version of the Holy Spirit than we have. It was the same spirit. The issue is this. How much do we allow ourselves to be led by the Holy Spirit? How much do we let the Holy Spirit within us call the shots, direct our lives moment to moment? It's a stunning thing when you realize that the Holy Spirit we have is the same Holy Spirit Jesus had. That every miracle Jesus did, he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. He relied on the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that's in us. What was the difference? Jesus lived in surrender to that Holy Spirit. He actually listened to that Holy Spirit every moment throughout the day. And Daniel was a man very much led by the Spirit as well. So make a note of this. Our spiritual power level is the direct result of the degree to which we yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit. So our spiritual power level, how much power we have as Christians in our spiritual lives is the direct result of the degree to which we yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is speaking to every believer all the time. When we're at work, he's encouraging us to work with integrity even if no one's watching us. When a situation or circumstance comes along that antagonizes, frustrates, or angers us, the Holy Spirit counsels us and says, Hey, don't let anger cause you to sin. Take a moment, bring this to the Lord in prayer before you respond. The difference is, some believers will say, that's a good word, Holy Spirit, I'm gonna listen to you. Others are like, not now, I'm too angry to talk. And we'll just do whatever we want. We're faced with decisions very often that we don't have the wisdom to make and the Holy Spirit comes along and says, hey, God's word says if you lack wisdom, ask for it and he'll give it to you freely. The issue is not the power of the Spirit that's in us. The issue is whether or not we will yield to what the Spirit is saying to us moment by moment throughout the day. Daniel was a man of prayer. He's a man who went to God throughout the day to make sure he was living in surrender to the will of God. And as a result, his life and career were blessed. This is mind-blowing when you realize this, that once again, Daniel is about to be made the second most powerful person in Babylon, in a completely different empire, with a completely different ethnic king. And somehow Daniel, despite not being either Chaldean under the Babylonians, Persian or Medan under the Medo-Persian empire, being a Hebrew, he's about to rise again to the second most important position in Babylon. And just as was the case, under the Babylonian Empire when he served King Nebuchadnezzar, this sparks massive jealousy on the part of all the other satraps and governors. Not in the least because Daniel is a Hebrew. He doesn't even share their ethnicity. They're all Medes or Persians, and then there's Daniel, the one Hebrew, and he's about to be put in charge of all of them. That doesn't go too well. And and I thought, what's an example I could give that would help us understand how much this would really just annoy the heck out of these guys. And I guess the best example I could think of would be, you know, imagine if, as Canadians, you turn on the TV tomorrow and we're watching 
And Justin Trudeau comes on and he says, great news Canada, I have found the most incredible number two man in my government. This is the guy who's gonna make all the policy decisions, call the shots. I'm just gonna focus on big picture stuff. I'm gonna travel the world. I'm gonna meet with dignitaries. I'm gonna take selfies. But this is the guy that's really gonna be running Canada. I got great news for you. He's a wonderful American. You guys are gonna love him. Can you imagine how that would go over? Would be like, he's, he's what? He's what? Yeah, he's, he's American. And I just think he's the best guy for the job. That's the sort of vibe that was going on here with Daniel. They're like a, a Hebrew? A Hebrew over Babylon? What, what are we talking about here? Verse 4, so the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. They're trying to find a skeleton in his closet. But they could find no charge or fault because he was underlined faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. So how do you avoid your terrible secrets getting out? Here's the trick. Don't have terrible secrets. That's how you do it. And the more they dug into Daniel's life, the more they discovered that the only secret Daniel had was that he was a man of integrity, whether he was before men or away from men. He was the same man all the time. This was the shocking conclusion they came to. The Apostle Paul exhorted us to have the same type of character in our own lives. When in Colossians 3, he wrote this, I put it on your outlines, and whatever you do, do it heartily. That means do it with all your heart, as to the Lord. So do it for the Lord, and don't do it for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Paul's advice is whatever your work is that you're doing for the day, raising kids, cleaning the house, working in the office, working at school, whatever it is, do it for God. Don't do it for the person who's your boss or the person who's paying you. Do it for God and so do it with integrity. Do it with all your heart. This is what Daniel understood. You can fill this in on your outlines. The key to integrity is living in response to Jesus and not the world. The key to integrity is living in response to Jesus and not the world. Let me explain what I mean by that. Instead of saying, you know, I'm not really going to work hard because my boss doesn't appreciate me, doesn't pay me enough, and so when I cut a few corners and work half an hour out of every hour when the boss isn't around, I'm really just balancing the scales. That's responding to the world around you. That's responding to your boss. That's responding to your circumstance. Instead, we say, Hey, I live to honor Jesus in everything I do. So whether my boss appreciates me or not doesn't really matter. Jesus loved me with his life, and I'm doing this for him. That's why I work hard. Instead of saying, you know, I've tried enough in my marriage. I'm done. If they want something to happen, they can make a move. But I'm done trying to initiate change. I'm done suggesting we go see a counselor. That's reacting to your spouse that's not responding to the Lord. Instead of doing that, we say, Lord, you've been so patient with me. I didn't get it for years. And I know that even though I can't see it, there's stuff you're trying to do in me right now that I'm not even seeing. And you've been trying for years to show it to me, but you never give up on me. And you've asked me to represent you to my spouse. So I'm going to keep doing my best to do that. Are you seeing the difference? If we live our lives reacting to a sinful world, guess what it's going to cause us to do? To sin. Big surprise. A fallen sinful world is full of fallen sinful people. 
And so the key to integrity is living in response to what Jesus has done, not what the world is doing to us or around us. And Daniel modeled that with such incredible strength. Verse 5, then these men said, we shall not find any charge against Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So when they can't find any fault in Daniel's character, they switch to attacking his faith. Verse 6, so these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All, underline, all the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make it a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. So look at the beginning of verse 7. They say all the governors. How many governors are there? Three. And who's one of them? Daniel. We know that Daniel hasn't agreed to this, which means they're lying to the king's face, a crime that would be punishable by death, and we'll come back to that later. So these guys come to King Darius, and this is their plan. They say, you know, we think it would be good if you passed a law that says people can only pray to you for the next 30 days. Doesn't matter who their God is, they can only pray to you. It's gonna be a great way to really establish the strength of your rule over the people. And as they're saying this, you can actually picture the air filling Darius's head as his ego inflates. And he's like, I like the sound of that. I like the sound of that. This is good advice right here. Verse eight, now, O king, they keep saying, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. So while in the Babylonian empire, Nebuchadnezzar's rule was an absolute monarchy where he had absolute control over everything, could do whatever he wants, Darius ruled under the Medo-Persian Empire, which had a constitutional monarchy. That meant that they had kings, but the kings still had to obey a constitution. And one of those laws in the constitution stated that once a decree had been put into writing and been signed by the king, it could not be changed. This is why some of you will remember in the story of Esther when the king gets tricked into signing the law that they can kill all the Jews on a certain day. He can't change that law, so he writes an additional law that says the Jews have the right to defend themselves. It was the same sort of deal. The problem for Daniel is obvious. He's a man of prayer who's lived his whole life in devotion to God. He's not afraid to die, and that's actually what his enemies are banking on. They know Daniel isn't gonna back down and they think they've really scored a certain victory because they know what's gonna happen. Daniel's gonna pray, which is gonna violate the law, and he's gonna have to be put to death. Even if Darius finds out that Daniel was never in agreement with the law, it'll be too late because the law can't be changed under the Medo-Persian constitution. They are high-fiving each other like crazy and they're like, we got him, we got him. You know, the Bible often teaches us things by using extreme examples. And one of those extreme examples is found in the life of Daniel here in chapter six. So Daniel's faithfulness to God, we've already seen, resulted in him outshining and outperforming every other government official 
in Babylon to such a degree that Darius is about to put him in charge of the whole government of Babylon. But also, in this same chapter, Daniel's faithfulness to God causes him to be hated by all the other satraps and governors to such a degree that they come up with a conspiracy whose end goal is the death of Daniel. Both of those extremes are here in the same chapter, the same chapter. Here's what I want us to recognize, write this down. Faithfully serving God will result in both uncommon favor and hatred among non-believers. If you want to faithfully serve God, it's going to result in both uncommon favor and uncommon hatred among non-believers. Daniel's devotion to his God was the cause of uncommon favor from the king and uncommon hatred from his governmental peers. Any church, any pastor, any speaker, any writer, any blogger, any movement that says that only one of those two things is the true evidence of faith is wrong. They're wrong. They're teaching unbalanced doctrine that's not true and it's not biblical. So let me explain what I mean. On the one end, we have the prosperity gospel that teaches if you're truly following God and living by faith, then everything will go well in your life and you'll have uncommon favor with people. On the other side, the poverty gospel teaches, hey, if you're truly following God and living by faith, then you're gonna be persecuted, you're gonna suffer, you're gonna be poor, and you're gonna be in difficulty pretty much all the time. The prosperity gospel teaches that things going well is the evidence of true spirituality. The poverty gospel teaches that things going poorly is the evidence of true spirituality. The only problem with both perspectives is the Bible. If you haven't been with us for most of the study through the book of Daniel, let me give you a spoiler. Daniel is one of the greatest examples of faith in the Bible, and the Bible has nothing bad to say about him anywhere, ever. And yet here in the same chapter, we see Daniel being both uncommonly favored and uncommonly hated because of his devotion to God. We see both, and you and I should expect and be prepared for both to happen in our lives. Devotion to God will result in uncommon favor with some people, but it'll also result in uncommon hatred from others. And now Daniel's gonna show us how we should handle both. Earlier in this chapter, Daniel's highly favored, now he's being highly hated. So let's find out how he responds. Verse 10, this is extraordinary. Now when Daniel knew, so in other words, when he heard that the writing was signed, he went home. He didn't run, grab his bug out bag and drive as far away as he could from Babylon. He went home and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down, underline knelt down, on his knees three times that day and, and then underline prayed and gave thanks before his God. This is the amazing part, underline this. As was his custom since early days. So what does Daniel do in the middle of a life-threatening crisis when favor turns to hatred? Don't, don't miss this, church. He does the same thing he's been doing practically his whole life. That's what he does. 
He goes home. He opens his windows. Unashamed and bold in his faith, he gets down on his knees and he prays, giving thanks to God. Where does that kind of faith, that kind of boldness come from? The same place we talked about earlier, the key to integrity is living in response to Jesus and not to the world. You see, Daniel's perspective was, I worship God because he's the true and living God, and he's my salvation. And nothing has happened today that has changed any of that. Therefore, I will continue to pray and thank God just as I did yesterday, and Lord willing, just as I will tomorrow. Your circumstances, my circumstances, do not change who God is, how much he loves us, or the reality that he saved us and given us the gift of eternal life. If everything in your life goes wrong tomorrow, everything, those things will still be true and God will still deserve your praise and thanks because of them. Daniel understood this and it's what real spiritual maturity looks like. When we're not spiritually mature, when we're not getting the things we want out of life, we withhold our praise from God. We withhold our thanks because what have you done for me lately? And that reveals that we're not really looking for God. What we're looking for is a genie. And the genie hasn't been performing lately, hasn't been responding to my requests the way I think he should. So no, no, I'm not, I'm not gonna thank him. I'm not gonna bless him. I'm not gonna praise him. He's been doing a bad job. I was looking for a genie. If that's what you're doing, you're actually looking for a way that you can be God over God. I I'm gonna withhold from him because he's really supposed to be serving me and I don't think he's been doing a good job serving me. But when you understand that we serve God and we are under him and he really is God, then when things aren't working out in life, you realize uh, last time I checked, he's still God. Last time I checked, he still saved me. Last time I checked, it's always turned out that he's been faithful and been doing good for me. None of that's changed, even if I lose everything tomorrow. That's why Daniel went home and had a reason to thank God. Make a note of this. The reasons God deserves our praise and thanks have nothing to do with our current circumstances. Nothing to do with our current circumstances. So if you're here tonight and you're thinking, man, I just, I just can't get into the, the music. I just can't sing to God. It's, uh, it's not my style. It's not my thing. And I've just been feeling kind of down lately. All those reasons are completely irrelevant. Completely irrelevant. I'm not trying to sound harsh, but the reality is that praise is for God. It's not for you. It's not for me. Worship is for God. It's not for you. It's not for me. It's not really about whether or not you like it. It's not for you. It's not for me. It's for God, for who he is. When the crisis hits Daniel's life, do you notice he didn't turn into someone else? He was the same man he was the day before the crisis hit. And the same is true for you and I. Here's what I know about everyone in this room. You've either just come out of a difficult time, you are in a difficult time, or whether you want to admit it or not, you're about to go into a difficult time. 
That's called life. That's not me being a prophet. That's just life. And you're going to figure out that's the cycle sooner or later. The trials and difficulties don't ever stop coming. What happens is hopefully we grow, we become more like Jesus, and we start doing better with those difficulties and trials. And they don't grind us down the same way they used to at the beginning. And when you and I are faced with our next crisis, let me tell you who we're going to be. We're going to be the man or woman we were right before the crisis hit. That's who we're going to be. None of us have a closet we can go to and we're like, oh, time to become crisis man. He's a completely different person to the person I was an hour ago. Now I'm a person who's calm, full of faith, in control, and can handle anything. I know that's not who I was an hour ago, but now the crisis has hit. I'm a completely different person. (laughs) We're not going to turn into some spiritual giant with massive faith if that's not how we're living right now. That's, that's crazy thinking. All a crisis does is make it clear who we really are. That's all it does. And if you've been with us a while, you've heard me talk about this before, and I usually say it like this. When the crisis hits your life, the faith you have is the faith you have. There's no switch you can flick on and say, oh, time to go into ultra-faith mode. Now I'm going to become a person of faith. You are the same person you were right before the crisis hit. So make a note of this, a crisis doesn't change who you are, it reveals who you are. It doesn't change who you are, it just reveals who you are. If I've been telling myself, yeah, 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 no, no, I I believe God, I trust God, and that's not true, it's going to become real obvious when the crisis hits. You see, Daniel was a man of prayer and faith whose daily habit was to spend time with the Lord and thank Him in prayer, and that's who Daniel continued to be when the crisis hit. And I share this with you because it's the truth. Even if it hurts, even if it's awkward, even if it's difficult, we need to be crystal clear about this principle. I don't want any of us to be confused. If you don't have the faith to trust God with money when you've got a job, what in the world makes you think you'll have the faith you need when you need God to provide you with a new job because you lose yours? If you don't have the faith to do marriage or relationships God's way now, what in the world makes you think that when your marriage is in crisis mode, you'll have the faith you need to believe God can heal it? We're deluding ourselves if we think that we're going to flick some switch and turn into suddenly a giant of the faith when the crisis hits. That never happens, and I'm so passionate about this because I hate seeing believers that I love and care about lie to themselves and delude themselves. And as a pastor, what I want for all of us is for us to be men and women of faith before the crisis, in the crisis, and after the crisis. Because while I can give you counsel and I can point you to the Word of God, I can't give you faith. I can't give you faith. Each of us has to make a choice in every area of life to trust God and believe that his way is the best way to do everything. And nobody else can make that decision for you. And when you live that way, when you're a man or woman of faith right now, here's what I know. You'll be a man or woman of faith when the crisis hits. And you'll bring honor to God by the way you walk with him through that crisis. Instead of bringing shame to God by panicking as though he doesn't exist, you'll bring honor to God by being calm 
and placing your trust in him. That's who I want to be. That's who I want all of us to be because that's who Daniel was. That's who God wants us to be. Being a man of God and a man of prayer was Daniel's normal. And I can't move on without stopping to ask all the parents in the room, especially the dads, a very, very important question. As your kids grow up in your home, under your care, what is normal when it comes to a relationship with God? What's a normal relationship with God to your kids? Is time in God's word normal or is it only something that a person does when they're on the verge of a breakdown? When your kids look at you, is time in prayer normal or is it what you do when all other options have been exhausted and you've got nothing else left to try? Is doing things God's way normal or only what we do when it's convenient? Man, our kids are, are watching us and they're forming their idea of what a normal relationship with God is based on how we are living our lives. We're telling them what normal is. Either that's terrifying or it's exciting. It can be exciting when you realize that if you're a parent, you can raise kids who think that radical faith is normal. It's normal. You can raise kids who think it's normal to drop everything if God calls you to go somewhere else and just go in faith. You can raise kids that think that's normal. You can raise kids who think it's normal to step out in faith and trust God when the resources aren't there yet. Kids who think it's normal to believe that God's going to show up and provide everything that's needed. Time in God's word can be normal. Prioritizing church can be normal. Living like Daniel can be normal. That's what I want for my kids. I don't want my kids to grow up going, we're going to live with radical faith. I want my kids to grow up thinking radical faith is just normal. That's what I want for my kids. Also in verse 10, we're told that Daniel would open his window and pray facing Jerusalem. Now, why would he do that? I want to read you something from 1 Kings 8. I put it on your outline. It's part of the prayer that King Solomon prayed when he dedicated the temple to the Lord after it had been built hundreds of years earlier, long before Israel was taken off to Babylon in captivity. This is what he prayed. He's praying to God, and Solomon is being inspired by the Holy Spirit, I believe, because what he prays so perfectly predicts what happens. He says, God, when they sin, when the people sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to an enemy, and they take them captive to the land of the enemy, far or near. And that's exactly what happened when Israel was conquered by the Babylonians and taken away in captivity. Yet when they come to themselves, so when they come to their senses in the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you, that means call upon you in prayer, in the land of those who took them captive, saying, we've sinned and done wrong, we've committed wickedness, and when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive, and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and the temple which I have built for your name, 
So when they pray in that direction to you while they're in captivity, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who've sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you. And grant them compassion before those who took them captive, that they may have compassion on them, for they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace, that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people Israel, to listen to them whenever they call to you. And we know that would happen too, for Cyrus the Great would give the order to free the Jews and allow them to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. But Daniel wouldn't end up being one of those Jews who ever went back to Jerusalem. And what I find so moving is that Daniel, despite being just one man, is doing exactly what Solomon prayed. And we're told that this was his custom. So Daniel had been doing this. He's 80 years old at this point around there. He's been doing this for decades with seemingly nothing changing. Waking up the next day and they're still in captivity in Babylon. He's been praying this prayer for decades, and there's no record of him rallying all the Jews in Babylon to get together and have a prayer rally for this and get really hyped up. This is going to be the breakthrough time, but he's doing it on his own every day, every single day, three times a day, and this is the kind of character that marked Daniel's entire life, whether other people were doing it or not. He was going to serve the Lord. He was going to pray for change. He was going to ask for a nation-saving miracle, and um, I was convicted when I was reading this because I was convicted how important it is to not lose hope in prayer. Because if I'm honest, if, if I'm getting together with other pastors in the city or something, and one of them is, and we're like, what, what are we going to pray for? And we're praying in small groups, and one of them is like, let's pray for revival in the city. Most of the time inside me, it's like, oh, come on, man. Like, really? How about we pray for, like, one person? You, you really think, like, revival is going to happen in, in Port Coquitlam and the majority of the population is suddenly going to turn to God. Like, let's pray for something more realistic. And I could have easily said that to Daniel in this situation. I could have, could have said, you know, Daniel, when, when you hit year 50 of praying for the same thing and there's no indication that anything's changing, I think you can let that go. I think, I think God gets it. He understands. He appreciates the solid effort for 50 years. But Daniel's commended for praying that way. God loves that about him. And the reason God loves that is because it means that man or that woman shares the heart of God. Because whether or not it happens, the Bible says it's the will of God that none should perish. God doesn't want anybody to not be saved. He gives everybody the choice. But he doesn't want anybody to reject him. And so when we pray for revival, when we pray for the lost to get saved, we're praying the heart of God for people. And whether it happens or not, God is so blessed when we pray in line with the desires of his heart. And it affects us whether it happens or not because our heart becomes aligned with the heart of God. And the more we want the things that God wants, the more we live in surrender to him, the more like Daniel we become living yielded to the will of the Holy Spirit. And so I just want to encourage you because I, I was encouraged by this text this week studying it. Don't give up praying for the lost. Don't give up praying for your city. Don't give up praying for your family. I don't care if it's been 50, 60, 70 years. Keep praying. 
Because it doesn't matter even whether you think it'll happen or not. You're praying in line with the heart of God, and God loves that. It blesses him. It blesses him. Verse 11. Then these men assembled and, surprise, surprise, found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And the original language makes it clear that it was actually like a near riot. They grab Daniel, and they're making the biggest scene they can. This man has defied the king. They're tearing their clothes going, this is awful, this is terrible. It's Daniel, D-A-N-I-E-L, Daniel that we've caught. And they're making the biggest scene that they can about it. Verse 12, and they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Um, Have you not signed a decree that Every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of the lions. What they're actually doing is they're just double-checking. Hey, you signed that thing, right? Ink is dry? Okay, good. The king answered and said, yeah, the thing is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, that Daniel. And then they slander him here, basically, who's one of the captives from Judah does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you've signed, but makes his petition. He prays to God three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Darius immediately realizes that his satraps and governors have played him. And he's angry with himself for being so stupid, so easily tricked. So he goes to work trying to find any way he can to get Daniel out of this predicament, which tells you a great deal about the affection he has for Daniel. But he doesn't have a leg to stand on. The law is on the side of the bad guys. And if Darius breaks the law, the satraps and governors will just run off to Cyrus and tattle on him which would have been really bad for Darius because not only would he have violated the law, but Cyrus probably would have said, what what a stupid law to sign in the first place. So he would have looked incompetent, but he also would have looked insubordinate because in telling everyone in the Babylonian province they could only pray to him, he was making himself out to be greater than Cyrus. So if these guys go running off to Cyrus, Darius has got a real problem on his hand. He's got no moves to make. Verse 15, Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. It's an ironclad plan, seemingly. There's no way for Darius to get Daniel out of it. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. This den would have been a cave with only a small opening in the roof, and Daniel would have been lowered down on a rope, and then the hole would have been sealed with a rock, most likely plunging the cave into total darkness, like a tomb. These lions would have been raised and abused intentionally to make them especially vicious, and then kept in a state of near starvation so that when someone was lowered into their den, well, it was was over very quickly. And so as Daniel's being lowered down into this den of death, we read, the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, underline continually, he will deliver you. And I say it like that because it wasn't really a statement from Darius as much as it was a question. Darius is not a man of faith. And and why do I say that? Well, because we just read that Darius spent all day trying to figure out a way to get Daniel out of this situation. And so now he's saying, 
Sure would be great if that God of yours would show up right about now. And I love that Darius characterizes Daniel as a man who serves his God continually. I just love that word, continually. That was Daniel's reputation. Not a man who served God when it was convenient, but a man who served his God in every situation, regardless of the cost. Verse 17, then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. So they put a rock on there, and they put a bunch of rocks together, they pour wax on them, and they seal them with a signet ring that would have the king's seal, and then his governors would have their own seals as well. And both sign it, in this case especially so that Darius can't go back later on and free Daniel. It would break the seal and then they would tattle on him to King Cyrus is the idea. Verse 18, now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. He couldn't eat anything and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. Couldn't sleep, he was so troubled. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice, with a grieving voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, voice coming out from the darkness, O king, live forever. And that floors me because... I would have responded to the king using language that I don't want to put on tape right here, right now. You see, I would have said, you stupid idiot. You were played by your own advisors and almost killed the one guy in your empire who you can actually trust. May God curse you. Go to hell. That's, that's what I would have said. And more. But not Daniel. Not Daniel. That's, that's why I never get put in a lion's den. That's why you shouldn't do that, Lord. I'll handle it terribly. Okay. Daniel understands the reality that Paul would later write about in Ephesians 6. It's on your outlines. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. Those are all different terms for demonic forces of Satan against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul wrote down what Daniel modeled perfectly, the understanding that as believers, we're battling against the forces of Satan, the enemy of Jesus and his followers. And so instead of lashing out at people when this happened, Daniel prayed. He handled his business in the arena where it actually mattered, the spiritual arena. When your boss is coming down on you and you're feeling victimized, don't lash out against people. You're not fighting against people. You're a follower of Jesus fighting against the forces of Satan. And when people don't belong to Jesus, Satan's free to use them, and, and he does. But they don't know that. They didn't wake up that morning and do their Pilates inside of a pentagram and be like, Satan, how do you want to use me today? So don't lash out against people. Whatever the situation, take care of business in the spiritual arena through prayer because that's where the action really is. That's where your energy can actually make a real difference. Make a note of this. God calls believers to fight spiritual battles while Satan lures people, believers, to fight people instead. God calls believers to fight spiritual battles, to pray, while Satan lures believers to fight against people instead. 
It is a wise thing to come to the place in life where when things are going on in relationships that you have, whether it's with your employer or with a friend, and things are just getting crazy, it is a wise thing to come to the place where you learn to just slow down and say, okay, okay, what's, what's really going on? What's really going on? Go for a walk, spend some time with the Lord and just ask him, God, what's really going on? I don't wanna lash out at a person when there's most likely something spiritual going on behind the scenes here. I don't wanna put my energies in the wrong place. I don't wanna fight with the wrong people. Daniel was a man who understood that. And he continues responding to Darius from inside the lion's den, verse 22. And he says, my God sent his angel, underline his angel, and shut the lion's mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him and also a king. I've done no wrong before you. Who's this angel who shut the lion's mouths? It's the same angel who walked with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. It's Jesus who's called the angel of the Lord repeatedly in the Old Testament. I was thinking about this. Wouldn't you love to know what Jesus was talking about in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? What are they talking about? And it's speculation, but because he walked with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I don't think that he showed up in the lion's den and said nothing. I don't think Daniel spent that whole night sleeping. I think he spent most of the night conversing with Jesus. He clearly saw him. He identifies him as the angel of God. I wonder what they talked about. I wonder what that's like to have the darkness illuminated by Jesus showing up in that situation. I'd love to know. Verse 23. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and, and then underline this, no injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. You see, in this instance, this is what God was doing. He was vindicating Daniel in front of his accusers. But we know it doesn't always turn out that way. You can just ask the millions of believers who've been martyred across the centuries for their faith in God. But that end part of verse 23 reminds me of a beautiful truth about where we're going, heaven, the presence of Jesus. It's been said that the only scars in heaven will be on the body of Jesus because his sacrifice on the cross is gonna be remembered and celebrated forever. The Bible tells us that. But you and I, no matter how deep the physical, emotional, or psychological trauma we've been through in this life, you and I, we're one day gonna find ourselves alive in the presence of Jesus with no scars. And this always chokes me up, just just thinking about this. Think about who you would be today if you'd never experienced any pain, any disappointment, any sadness in life. Ever. Just just think about who you would be. Think about the sort of reckless joy and innocence that you would have, the lightness about you that would be present because you'd never carried any kind of burden. Ever. Emotionally, physically, psychologically, spiritually. That's who we're going to be when we get to heaven. That's who we're going to be. When you enter heaven, this is going to be true of you. This is going to be true of me. No injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. 
That's the future for every single one of us in the presence of God. I can't wait for that. Verse 24. And the king gave the command, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives, and the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. This was Darius's command because these satraps and governors had lied to him and deceived him. It's not the way God would have handled it. God even says in his word in the Old Testament law that a son shall not be held responsible for the sins of his father. This wasn't what God wanted, but it was standard procedure in the Middle East at that time for deceiving and lying to a king. And as is so often the case, tragically, a man's sin has terrible consequences for his whole family. It's one of Satan's favorite lies that your sin and my sin will only affect us, nobody else. It never works out that way. Verse 25, then King Darius wrote, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. What does the Bible say about the fear of the Lord? It says it's the beginning of wisdom. And clearly Darius was in such awe of God's power He was genuinely fearful of the power of this God that Daniel served, and that gave him the wisdom to recognize who God was. We don't know if Darius became a believer, but at least in this moment, he recognized that Daniel's God was the true and living God. And he goes on to write, for he is the living God. In other words, he's the one people should be praying to, not me. And steadfast forever, his kingdom is the one that shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. Just as was the case with Nebuchadnezzar, Darius recognizes that there's no comparison between his power and God's power. Verse 27, he delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered, underline prospered, in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. It's incredible, incredible stuff. And the end of chapter 6 marks the halfway point of the book of Daniel. The first six chapters are some of the most incredible historical accounts in the whole Bible. Starting next week in chapter 7, things are going to change dramatically. And we're going to begin to deal with some very, very mystical things as Daniel begins to be given these strange visions by God that show him much of history that unfolded between his time and the time we're living in today. Daniel is also shown things that haven't even happened yet from our perspective, but are coming together and beginning to unfold as we speak and study this. It's going to be fascinating. You don't want to miss it. Make sure that you're here next week because many believers have never studied the back half of the book of Daniel. Most churches, they go up to here and they stop and they're like, that's great, some awesome stories. Let's stay away from all the weird stuff so that nobody gets freaked out. However, that's just not our thing here at New Hope Church. In case you haven't noticed, as we found when we went through the book of Revelation, it's not that complicated when you simply read what it says and you use the rest of the Bible to help you interpret and understand what's there. And that's the approach we're going to take to the back six chapters of Daniel as well. If you haven't gone through our study of Daniel chapter 2, 
take the time to go onto the website and do that this week before next week because in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is going to receive a vision that is very similar to what he sees in chapter 2. Chapter 2, it's the vision of the kingdoms of the earth seen from the perspective of man. Chapter 7, it's going to be those same kingdoms seen from the perspective of God. So study that so that you can be up to speed next week and make sure you don't miss it. Well, there's so much for us to learn in this chapter from the example of Daniel. His power and his strength came from his relationship with the Lord. He was a man of prayer. Three times a day, he would stop what he was doing and thank God in prayer. And when he did that, Daniel was pushing the reset button on himself and making sure that he was living submitted to God. I don't know how it is for you, but you can have a morning devotional. And the second that devotional is over, you begin moving from godliness towards ungodliness till the next time you push that reset button. That's how it works. And I think Daniel was a man who realized if I'm really going to live a godly life, I've just got to push that reset button more often so that I don't have the chance to get as far away as I would if I was only doing this once a day. So three times a day, he's pushing the reset button, coming back to God, saying, God, help me to focus on you. Help me to be led by your spirit. I want you to call the shots in my day. And so if you're in the place where you might have a devotional time, a prayer time with the Lord in the morning, but you find, man, by lunchtime, early afternoon, you're irritable, you're cranky, you're like, am I a Christian? I I was sure this morning, but now I'm not sure anymore. It's two o'clock. Maybe I just need a cup of coffee, and that could be true. I I identify with that. But maybe what you want to do is just set some sort of alarm for 1 p.m. or something and, and just take two minutes at your desk. You can pray with your eyes open, whatever you need to do, and just say, God, I just want to let go of everything that's built up this far in the day, any bitterness I might have, any crankiness that might be coming on, any unforgiveness that might be wanting to creep in. I just let that go in the name of Jesus, and I want you to direct my day. Come meet with me, God, and do that. Maybe you need to do that, and I think that would make a profound difference for for all of us. But perhaps when we talk about prayer in the life of Daniel, and I'm sharing this, you're overwhelmed with guilt and shame because we're talking about praying three times a day, but there's a voice in your head that's telling you, three times a day? Let's be honest, you ain't prayed three times this year. And you're just feeling like you're a terrible, terrible Christian. I want you to know the Apostle Peter wrote this. He said, be sober, be vigilant, Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour you. You see, Satan's out to devour you. He is out to destroy your faith. And while he can't steal your salvation, he can make you miserable. He can make you completely ineffective for God. He can make you look like being a Christian is the most miserable job assignment in the world when other people look at you. That's what he's out to do. He's out to devour you, whether it's through discouragement, rejection, through false accusation, being the victim of rumors, guilt, shame, telling you you're doing a terrible job as a Christian, whatever he can find that will make you ineffective. He's out to devour you just as he tried to devour Daniel physically and spiritually. But what did Jesus do when the lions tried to devour Daniel? In verse 22, Daniel told us, my God sent his angel And shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. 
And even though we've all sinned and rebelled against God in our own way, over and over again, our God sent his angel, Jesus Christ, to shut the mouth of the lion, Satan, our accuser. And he did that by taking the punishment that should have been ours on the cross. And now Satan, our accuser, the lion who seeks to devour us, is unable to hurt us. Why? Because we've been found innocent before our God. Romans 8.1, there's now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus has taken the teeth out of the accuser, Satan the lion. And what is God's reaction to seeing you and I emerge unharmed from the power of sin and death, from the power of the lion that seeks to devour us? We're told that Daniel emerged unharmed and as a result, the king was exceedingly glad. That's how your king feels about you. You know, Jesus is not up in heaven looking at you saying, I can't believe what a loser you are, but I'm glad you're okay. He sees you as innocent because he's paid for your sin. And seeing you robed in his righteousness, his holiness makes Jesus exceedingly glad. I want you to know that as we seek to pray more, as we seek to live in submission to Jesus, to be more like Daniel, we're not doing this to try and earn our place in heaven. We're not doing this to try and get God to like us or to think we're good enough. We're doing it because we've already been found innocent by God. He's already loved us. He's already glad that we belong to him. And we found in him the only purpose in life that truly matters. We found in him joy and hope and peace and we want more of that. We want more of him. And so if you're hearing any voice of accusation, just remember, Jesus has shut the mouth of the lions for Daniel, for you, and for me as well. And the last thing I'm gonna highlight again is that the lion's den was simply Daniel's next step of faith. He had been trusting God his whole life, his whole life. And so when the next trial showed up, he simply trusted God through that trial as well. Faith in God was normal for Daniel. So when the crisis hit, he just did what was normal. He had faith in God. And you and I need to decide today and every day who it is that we're going to be. Are we going to be men and women of faith? who believe God and trust God now? Are we gonna trust him with our lives? So that when the crisis hits your life and mine, and it will, it, it will, the faith we have will be real and it'll make a real difference. So we gotta to decide today, who do you wanna be? Who do you wanna be? But don't lie to yourself. Don't fool yourself into thinking that when the crisis hits, you're gonna turn into someone else. Put your faith in God today. If there's an area of life where you're not trusting God or doing things his way, change today. And I promise you will make it through every trial with faith and with, and with peace as you trust God. But you've got to make that decision today because when it arrives, it's too late. It's too late. Let's go ahead and pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And Father, we thank you so much for your word and just for the example of your servant, Daniel, Lord. Thank you uh, for the blessing of his life and uh, the way he models faith. Uh, Lord, I'm just so blessed by the fact that when the crisis hit his life that was life-threatening, he went and did the same thing he had been doing every day up until that point. 
And Father, we want to live when the crisis has not hit yet. As though we need you as desperately as we do in the crisis. Because we know the truth is we need you as desperately right now as we'll need you then. God, we need you every moment, every hour, every single day. You're, you're the only thing that brings any kind of meaning to anything that we do. And Lord, a day spent without you is meaningless. And we want every day to matter. The gift that you've given us of life, we want it to matter. And we recognize that having you be a part of it is the only thing that makes it matter. So God, will you come into our moments, our minutes, our hours, and our days. Father, will you give us a, a mindfulness of you, an awareness of you. Lord, will you help us to stop and push the reset button throughout the day just to say, God, I'm, I'm just checking in because I don't want to drift that far away from you even throughout the day. God, practically, will you help us not to fight people but who instead be like Daniel, be men and women of prayer, who understand that the battle belongs to you. Will you help us to be people who don't feel the need to defend ourselves all the time, but who allow you to be our defender. In your name, we just wanna come before you and Lord, release uh, anybody from any unforgiveness or bitterness that we may be holding towards them, God. We let that go because we recognize that you know what's going on. And Lord, you are so much more able to change a man or change a woman than we are. We can't change anybody. So Father, we ask that we would be concerned with the things that you ask us to be concerned with, that we would be concerned with our own spiritual condition, that we would ask you to change us. And Father, to do a good job of loving those you've put in our lives as you work on changing them as you're working on changing us, Lord God. But we let that go in the name of Jesus. And then, Lord, we just thank you so much that when we should have been shut up in a tomb of darkness because we were guilty, Lord, you took our place on the cross so that we could be lifted out of the pit of death and be found innocent before you simply because we believed in our God. Not because of anything we've done, but because we believe in what you've done for us. Lord, thank you for silencing our accuser. Thank you for making us holy. Thank you for making us righteous, for doing what we could not do when we were in a hopeless situation. And so, Father, as we prepare to worship, as we prepare to take communion, we once again recognize that your worthiness of our praise and our thanks this evening has nothing to do with anything going on in our lives or with anything that's not going on in our lives. You're worthy because of who you are and because you're our savior, because you loved us first, because you took our place on the cross. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. 
Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.